Today's episode of the Nick Taylor Horror Show is brought to you by Diabolic DVD. For almost 20 years, Diabolic DVD has been the source for horror, cult, and weird cinema to customers around the world. Diabolic offers a one-stop shopping experience for all of your favorite labels, including Arrow, Synapse, Vinegar Syndrome, Severin, Mondo Macabro, Blue Underground, 88, and many more from all corners of the globe. So whether you're looking for the definitive version of Suspiria or trying to upgrade your crusty old DVD of Cannibal Holocaust, Diabolic is the owner-operated small business choice you've been craving. Shop online at DiabolicDVD.com. That's D-I-A-B-O-L-I-K-DVD.com. We're also brought to you by Deadly Grounds Coffee. It's the number one choice of horror fans worldwide. Nothing starts your day or night better than a delicious cup of Deadly Grounds. Whether you're hunting ghosts or fighting the next zombie apocalypse, any one of Deadly's 30-plus roasts will bring you to caffeine nirvana with the richest flavor you've ever had. Whether you're craving their hellhound roast, witch's brew, devil's night roast, or sinful delight, Order online at getdeadly.com for easy and safe shipping right to your door. We know that once you go deadly, you won't go back. Join the deadly revolution today. Be bold, be different, be deadly. Deadly Grounds Coffee. Coffee to die for and zombie approved. Get some at getdeadly.com. Welcome to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Steven Kostansky is a writer, director, and practical effects makeup artist. His latest movie, Psycho Goreman, is about to be released, and boy, oh boy, does it look fucking awesome. Before Psycho Goreman, Steve directed Leprechaun Returns, Manborg, and The Void. The Void is an incredibly impressive movie. Imagine a film about a deadly cult that mixes elements of The Thing with Hellraiser, all in this sort of Lovecraftian universe. Making The Void was an incredibly hellish experience for Steve, and we hear firsthand from him what it was like to be in the trenches of a brutally difficult shoot and how he was able to overcome this and become a better director in the process. Overall, I highly recommend The Void. You can stream it on Shudder right now, and the effects in this movie are just sensational. It's a really, really great watch, and the effects work is amazing. So check it out on Shutter. In addition to being a director, Steve is also a practical effects makeup artist, and he designs and builds the creatures in his own films. Steve was, in fact, a student of Dick Smith's, and we hear some great stories about him. Overall, I had a lot of fun chatting with Steve, so here, for your listening pleasure, is Steven Kostansky. You started in um, practical effects, is that right? Well, technically... I started in stop motion animation as a kid. Like that was the thing I started doing because as a 12 year old, I didn't have like access to actors and like lighting equipment locations and things to make real movies. So I was like, I'll just start like real tiny because my imagination was too big for the things that I could pull off. Like with my friends that I hang out with on weekends, like, Nobody else was interested in making like sci-fi horror action epics. So it was like, well, I'll try to make this stuff on a tiny scale. And then that graduated into shooting some live action stuff with my more capable friends who were more interested in film. 
and then kind of merging that with stop motion. So all my early stuff is like stop motion and live action mixed together. And so when that started happening, I was, I then transitioned into doing uh, practical effects and creature effects and makeup because uh, it just seemed like an organic progression from like sculpting stop motion puppets to sculpting a makeup that I would glue onto a friend right. monster instead of having to hand animate a stop motion thing. Yeah. So it grew out of, stop motion and that style of storytelling. Uh, and that's what led me to doing practical effects. Nice. And when uh, Guillermo del Toro was doing Kronos, his first movie, he uh, Dick Smith was a big mentor of his. And uh, Dick Smith taught him a lot about doing practical effects. So he made all of his effects on Kronos himself. Del Toro did. So having an effects background has got to give you a huge leg up when you're doing your own films. That's how, with prosthetics, that's how I started too, is I got the Dick Smith course. Um, and so I was able to also like coordinate with him and he kind of mentored me on, uh, my sculpting and makeup as well. It was like, this would have been like mid two thousands. Like I got the basic course in 2004. And then while I was going to university, it was like, I went, I went to university with, to potentially go into education as like a way of placating my parents while at the same time I did the Dick Smith course, which is, it's a correspondence course. So he sends you a big book. And I was like reading that book at my like lectures, like for, you know, like English class <laughs> when I should focusing on that, I was learning about prosthetics and doing that at home and I'd send him pictures of stuff and he'd call me and we'd talk over the makeups and stuff and he'd give. So yeah, it was like right at the tail end of like him, doing that before he passed away so it was good that i was able to get in there oh that's amazing uh, some of his advice because yeah it's pretty surreal being able to talk to that guy to be able to talk to him and just have like very casual conversations with this guy that's like the best of the best but he's like the chillest nicest person i've ever talked to it was really really amazing now that's amazing particularly that you got to have that relationship with him you know, kind of in the nick of time, so to speak. I've heard that he's unbelievably gracious with people. I mean, that's how Rick Baker got to work with him is I think Rick would send him letters and then he finally is like, hey, I'm shooting this movie called Little Big Man. Why don't you come aboard? And he just observed him for a day and then before he knew it, he was working on The Exorcist with him. And J.J. Abrams would write him letters and he would send him. There's a story about him sending J.J. Abrams a tongue from The Exorcist. <laughs> like, yeah, he was just, he was, I feel like he was the sweetest guy in, in practical effects. Well, one of our conversations, I was complaining about sculpting uh, like an old age makeup because that's what he got you to do was to sculpt like very realistic makeups. He wasn't mm -hmm. that interested in like what you could do with like a zombie or a werewolf or like an alien. He wanted he wanted very like realistic character makeups because his logic was the better you get at sculpting the human form, the better anything fantastical will become because drawing from real life forms and reference as opposed to just like you know like starting with a very outlandish alien you're not putting in anatomy like you're not thinking in terms of the anatomy the way you would with a character makeup of like a an old man or something so i was complaining to him about sculpting the crow's feet i'm like an old person like the wrinkles by the eyes and so he actually sent me a cast of an old age sculpt that he did and i've got it right here i've like had it with me since 2004 and so it's like so it's actually like a, like sculpt it's hard to tell but it's like a forehead and then like crow's feet and so it was that way i could have like a close-up reference when i was sculpting yeah uh, he sent me like 
because it was like it, it was in the internet days but for him it was like he didn't care he did it all totally old school so he sent me a big like binder just full of black and white printed like reference photos of old people which i still have kicking around somewhere because to him it was like the more reference you had the better like the more pictures and things the more like if you have like a life cast of somebody like anything to get that real life reference to him was important to draw reality instead of just being totally fantastical. Yeah. Because then, I mean the, the, when people see those creations and they're rooted in reality, people tend to believe them a lot more if they're grounded in actual biology, you know, in certain cases, I feel like you can always tell the practical effects artists who have a background in either the human form or in the animal form. Like I think Chris Wayless did a lot of animal stuff, which is why the gremlins look dead to rights. Oh yeah. Particularly in Gremlins too. Although that was Rick Baker technically. But anyway. Yeah. Well yeah, I agree. It's like anything fantastical should have some element of the real world to it, so you have some reference point mm-hmm. for the audience mm-hmm. so they can look and kind of tell like 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 they're able to pull from their experience to connect it to reality instead of it being unless you're trying to make a thing like this like Lovecraftian thing that's so abstract that you want people to be put off by it. Right. But, uh, yeah, typically you want your creatures to emote and be like, that have some connection to the audience. So to do that, it needs to be grounded in reality in some way. Yeah. Typically that's by following human or animal anatomy. Yeah. So how were you able to make the transition from effects and makeup into filmmaking and directing? It was because I started making those little stop motion movies and then my like little live action movies with my friends that I just like, I never disconnected the two. It was always like, I have to make movies and make monsters. Right. Like I get real antsy if I'm doing just one or just the other. Uh, like my day job uh, up to this point, at least has mostly just been working in creature effects. Uh, and I find if I get deep too deep into that, like working on set for, like whatever shows they're shooting in Toronto, like at the time, like I get real, like, like a real creative, uh, like anxiety. So I have to also make movies, but then when I'm like making movies, I want to be making the monsters for them. So it's just, I'm always trying to do both things at once, which is, it's a lot of work to take on, but at the same time, it's like, either like aim, aim real big or like, don't bother in my opinion. So yeah, I always got to be as ambitious as possible because I want to. I want that creative satisfaction of being able to make a thing with my hands and then also put it in front of a camera and bring it to life. That's really interesting that you you have that drive to constantly be doing both simultaneously. So creature features clearly is is your direction. I guess I could someday make a normal movie that's just like people talking, but. I don't know. That's not driving me. That's not the thing I grew up on. Yeah. Like I, I got, I guess I got that like Charles band problem where it's like <laughs> I just have like little monsters running around or like big monsters. I just got to have like something that when you look at the poster or the VHS box, you're like, Oh, I gotta like, I gotta see that thing in action. Yeah. You know, like, and I don't know. I feel like there's like a stigma against things being so effects heavy, but you look at other cultures, you look at like Japanese cinema and it's like, so, so much of it is rooted in special effects. Like it's all like genre in itself. Mm -hmm. And it's like still 
going strong. So I feel like, I don't know, I think it's maybe a side effect of the industry in North America right now where it's like you're either making a super low budget thing for like no money. So you can't afford to be ambitious. So you're automatically like thinking in this box of like, okay, well I can maybe have like uh, one monster man and a bunch of gags and that's it. Or it's a $200 million Marvel movie that can afford all the CG in the world to make all the things that you want, like come to life. So that like mid range movie, like the, I feel like all the, uh, the like Givers and even something like, even like the original Ghostbusters. Like, I feel like that kind of scale of movie like is missing for audiences right now. And so it's the thing that I'm trying to make, which like I'm, I'm operating on the budgets of like the lowest of the low. I'm just trying to throw everything I have at it to give people like that scope that we used to get mm-hmm. when you go scour the video store for a movie and just a random weird thing that would usually be like empire pictures or full moon or something like that. Yeah. Creature feature, like sci-fi action horror mishmash. That's, you know, not like every other movie that's out right now where it's like a family deals with a ghost in a house. Right. <laughs> like that's fine, but that doesn't have to be every movie, you know? Yeah. So just trying to counteract that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems like there's a real appetite for a lot of practical effects nowadays. I feel like the pendulum is completely swung back and people are just yearning for handcrafted creatures and characters. And I, and I feel like that kind of mid range movie that you're describing, similar to the movies that you've been doing there, it feels like there's going to be more of an appetite for it because everybody is just collectively sick to death of CGI, just this digital fatigue. And it's not just with Marvel movies as well. It's I think people yearn to see actual handcrafted art come to life on screen nowadays in any budget range with that art. Like people want that story of like, Oh, how did they make that thing? And that's a talking point. I mean, and this isn't to discredit VFX artists around the world because there's some really awesome CG out there that I love. And like, I think it's great that I can go see like the infinity gauntlet saga on the big screen. Like that's like little kid. Steve thinks that's super awesome. But at the same time, I'm not watching it asking myself like, Oh, how'd they do that? Right. Yeah. I know how they did that. They threw money at, you know, a bunch of computers and like, 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 yes, a lot of hard, hard work and talent went into that, but it's like, like, I don't find those kinds of VFX breakdowns like interesting to watch. Whereas I'd rather watch like Phil Tippett, like animating the ad ad for empire strikes back. You know, like seeing them try to build like the Rancor for Return of the Jedi and how it was originally like a creature suit and they didn't like how it looked. So then they made the rod puppet and just like all like playing with scale. Like there's there's none of that like sleight of hand, like magician's magic mm. yeah. to CG where it's like, well, you can just do anything. And it's like the conversation ends there. Whereas pre CG, it was like, well, how do we do that? And you have to figure it out and you got to figure out almost at like every stage, like how to accomplish that illusion. So it's like, it it comes down to like, like, how do we shoot it? How does the actor like sell this thing that's happening? And like, how do we execute the effect 
in the most effective manner. So I feel like there's, there's just like a way more interesting background to that. And I think people want that because things feel so finite right now too. Like it's like you watch a thing and then you forget it immediately. And I think people want those movies that they can just like keep talking about and dissecting and like getting little behind the scenes tidbits about. I think a lot of that comes from like making movies in that fashion where it's practical, like as practical as possible and innovating as well. Like trying to figure out how to do things in a new way that people have seen or using old techniques and kind of reinventing them mm-hmm. in a modern setting. Yeah, and I feel like people are finding more and more movies to be disposable entirely because their eye doesn't believe CGI. You'll see these big epic space battles, but it'll leave your system right after seeing it because yeah. you don't you because all the the costumes and the the creatures don't have any weight or gravity, and your subconscious realizes that, but your eyes might think, "Oh, this is enjoyable. It's a CGI fest," but you're left kind of you know still hungry. <laughs> After the fact, that's why I think a lot of disposable movies coming out. But when something's built, finally, um, and yeah, it's a really just good point about the practical effects artists when they once were illusionists, basically crafting things with sleight of hand, and how there's you know none of that anymore. I do actually enjoy the process, the VFX process on a lower budget because it does become that game of like, well, how do we pull this off? Yeah, and you have a good relationship with VFX people and practical effects artists and you find ways to kind of like mash all those things together to make the best result. Mm-hmm. Like there's nothing I love more than like shooting a bunch of elements, like practical elements, and then you pass it off to VFX and they take those practical things and mash them together. Like to me, CG is the best for like stitching stuff together and like wire removal and like cleanup. Like uh, even like on the void, like there was a few shots where there was like bad seams on some of the makeups. And for me to be able to go in and after effects and like clean that up. So you'll never notice like is awesome. Like I will, uh, definitely bow to the altar of computer effects when it comes to post and just like basically smoothing out your movie to make it to like fix mistakes. Cause I can't imagine a world where you don't have that just be, totally awful to be able to do like even the most basic cleanup on your movie and the fact that I can do it myself and like, you know, it doesn't cost me anything to like take a light out of a shot or something is so awesome. So yeah, again, I don't want this to come across as I'm like shooting on VFX. I think it's a higher up problem. It has nothing to do with the artist. It has to do with the approach to these movies and I think kind of like the homogenization of just like big movies in general, because definitely the like artistry is there and it's all really great. It's just, I don't think it's being utilized in a way that's really impressing people the way movies used to impress people. Right. But I mean, I just, I love to see that you're bringing back practical effects in a big way, but handcrafted effects that seem to have your signature on them, like the creatures in the void. And from what I'm seeing with Psycho Goreman, there's there's a real iconicism behind it, but there's also a very individualized artist's aesthetic with the work that you're doing, which is super cool. I feel like we haven't seen that in a while. Well, I have a weird process of designing everything where I kind of make things up as I go. Like I'm not a fan of... Like, it's awful because you need this for your movies, but like 
the pre-production process and the like discussion I'm, uh, bores me so much. Like the idea of like, I'm going to get somebody to like do a Photoshop design of a thing. And then I'm going to like look at six different versions of a thing and then pick the one that I like, you know, like that, that whole like structure of settling on a design for something seems so boring to me because I like designing out of necessity. And so a lot mm. of that, it, that's been on all my movies. Like it was definitely on the void and it was even to a certain extent on Leprechaun and on PG where it's like, we're planning these creatures and these effects around what we're able to do and around what's at our disposal. So like a lot of the creatures in PG have elements to them that are there just because as I was fabricating the thing, I was like, Oh, there's like a box of like leftover horns from this other creature we made. I'm going to glue a bunch of those onto it. And it's like, I'm like creating my vision of this creature, like out of stuff that I just have lying around. And it's more of like more of my days of like building with Lego and just kind of like, cool. like I'm not, I'm not following an instruction manual necessarily. I'm just kind of like putting pieces together to see what I can get out of it. And I mean, I've had cases where stuff just hasn't worked out and I haven't been happy with that. I've had to scrap it. Like it's always a gamble, but I also feel like it's a gamble having to work off of a very specific design because the designer isn't thinking practically a lot of times. They're just thinking like in terms of design aesthetics, like what looks cool to them but they're not thinking like, how are we going to do it? How's this thing going to move? How's it going to interact with actors? How are we going to fit a performer into it? Like I like thinking from the start with a creature, like I want this to be a rod puppet, or I want this to have like cable controlled component, or I want this to be like just entirely just like suit that's dependent on actors performance and nothing else. And so thinking about your design in those terms, I think helps you uh, kind of like sidestep issues before they happen. I think it's just a symptom of me being in the low budget world almost exclusively. Right. Being resourceful. And no money. And so like, how can I get from point A to point B efficiently so I have the most time to just like make it look good for camera? So, yeah. Interesting. So when it comes to, do you, do you still sketch the creatures before you sit down and sculpt or do you just kind of, you know, let, let spirit move you? It like, it depends on the specific creature and it depends on the job too. Like, I mean, for stuff, uh, like for other projects, like when I'm just working in the shop on other movies and TV shows, like a lot of times a design comes in and it's like, just sculpt this thing and I'll go and I'll sculpt that thing. But if it's, a certain circumstance, like there's some stuff on, uh, on rabbit that I sculpted. That was just kind of like, I had a rough sketch of what it was supposed to look like or a vague idea. And I was just like, all right, I'll take this like pencil doodle and I'll sculpt a thing. That's like approximately that idea. Um, mm -hmm. so I, for me personally, I like having like, like not being tied to a design specifically, but it all depends on the circumstance. And so like on my movies, like on PG, PG, I had uh, a concept artist, like do some drawings for me just so I could kind of work out vaguely what I wanted him to look like. 
because my description of him in the script was so like, like it was so broad that I felt like I needed some kind of drawing to at least settle on like, like, does he have clothes? Like what basic color scheme does he have? Like what are like some of the core concepts to him that I can integrate as I'm sculpting? So I'm not like sculpting the head to look one way and the face to, or the hands to look another way. And so with some things on PG, I had drawings, some things I just went, I have a bunch of this shit lying around. I will mash it together and see what it turns into. And some stuff I also like, I would just sculpt a thing cause I had an idea in my head. Uh, so I would sculpt like the head of a creature and then based off that head, I would look at it and go, okay, well like what would the rest of this thing be? And kind of build out from that. Uh, so yeah, it was, it's a real mishmash process. There's no like set guidelines for me again, mm-hmm. like anything to avoid having to have like endless meetings and discussions of like, like I think uh, his shoulder pads could be a little bigger or like, could we like, like make them sleeker? Like all those discussions I don't, I don't care about. And I don't feel like you get, I don't think there's like an honesty to that when it's so like committee, uh, kind of decided. I find every design just starts to look the same. Uh, even though I do think a lot of my things all look the same, but they're like consistent in like my cinematic universe, I guess. I just want to do stuff that when you see it, you go like, Oh, that's a weird, interesting thing I've never seen before. Or like, Oh, that has like a vibe of this thing that I know, except it's like turned up to 11 <laughs> as a, just like, yeah, the same like f- faceless, big toothed, like screaming ghost monster thing that every movie has. So what were some of the formidable movies for you when it comes to practical effects that specifically inspired your aesthetic? Uh, I mean, like it's all, all the practical effects movies I love are like all the obvious ones. So like all the evil dead movies, uh, I guess a big one, actually like army of darkness. That was the, uh, I think like the first horror movie VHS I ever got and I got for Christmas, like in the late nineties. Uh, and it was the anchor Bay release that had bonus features. Like when VHS tapes would have the movie and then after the movie, they would have like a making of the trailers and it would just all be kind of sequential at the end. And so that was the first time I saw like a modern, like creature effects shop. So seeing like Kane VFX and just seeing a bunch of guys like with long hair and like heavy metal shirts, like goofing off and like slinging foam latex around like that really like flipped a switch in my head. Cause I was like, I look like I could hang out with those guys and make monsters all day. Like it really like pulled back the curtain on what effects were. Whereas before that there was this show called movie magic that I used to always watch. Uh, that was like, you know, peek behind the scenes on different movies. And, uh, so they'd show stuff for like star Wars. And I remember they had an episode on spawn that I really liked. Um, so yeah, there's like, I guess a good one would be the thing, like the designs of the creatures and the thing are a big inspiration to me. Uh, just because the creatures in it are so like amorphous and like, uh, like undefined and constantly changing. Like I love things that are constantly changing. Um, and I think part of that comes from 
video games as well. Like I'm a big fan of like boss fight where boss turns into a bigger boss after you fight him, uh, which, you know, happens in movies and stuff as well. Another good example, uh, Ninja Turtles 2, when Shredder turns into Super Shredder. Uh, so I feel like um, the ever-evolving villain is a thing that I got from my, uh, like, that I took from these movies. Um, I'm trying to think of, like, what else creature effects-wise. But in, like, Army of Darkness is weird. I watched the Evil Dead trilogy backwards, so I started with Army of Darkness and worked my way back to Evil Dead. I did the same thing. Which, like, was the worst way to watch those movies <laughs> because they escalate as each sequel happens. So you're starting with the biggest, craziest, dumbest one, and then going back to one that's very, like, minimal and pretty terrifying. So it was jarring for me because I wasn't really into horror movies, but that was what totally, like integrated me into that universe and the first evil dead just the like ruggedness of the practical effects mm-hmm. really appealed to me i like as a teenager i loved anything that was like super low budget because it felt accessible like i that was the stuff i could look at and dissect and be like oh how'd they do this and like figure out how those effects came together so evil dead was a big one uh, the Yuhei Kitamura movie Versus was another big one uh, from the late 90s or it was 2000, I think. But uh, I bought that DVD and watched that movie over and over because it's like such a low budget epic. Like it's huge for what it punches way above its weight uh, in terms of being like a kind of low budget action zombie movie with so much style. It was, that was the movie that for the more like filmmaker side of my brain was excited because I saw that it was a movie that took place mostly in a forest. And for all like every, everything that the movie displayed should have been boring, but it had so much style to it that it like, like the movie is that style, like the movie is the angles and just the way the characters interact. It's so hyper, like realistic like it feels like an anime and so for me that was like a real big inspiration because it was like oh even with no money you can make a movie that like has ener- like real energy mm-hmm. that carries you through and it really doesn't you don't need millions of dollars to pull that off yeah so that was a big inspiration too yeah yeah it's amazing how which just having that tone and, and confidence behind certain movies can give them an energy that kind of, in some cases can give them cult status instantly. Yeah. Like evil dead does that too, where it's like last act of that movie. It, it becomes just like Raimi's like, like just becomes this God like over Bruce Campbell. And like, you feel the camera itself is like tormenting him. Yeah. Way that it just gets crazier and crazier. And, uh, yeah, I, as a kid, I was a big fan of that, of like really feeling the filmmaker, mm-hmm. like controlling the movie and controlling the situation. Uh, it just really made it feel that much more like fantastical and that kind of like, it wasn't necessarily fourth wall breaking, but it still felt like, like I felt like I was in a movie and I liked that feeling because yeah, then it was like, okay, this movie knows that I'm on this ride and it's going to like, I'm conscious of it taking me on the most insane ride possible. Mm -hmm. It's not trying to be subtle. 
Yeah. And I like when filmmakers have a hand on that regard. And it, I, that's, that's a real interesting type of cinema, particularly in horror when you just, when you're on that ride. But you see it a lot in those, like, like I feel like even James Cameron's stuff, I feel like has that where you just know, you just know that he's like behind all of it, especially like the Terminator movies. The first Terminator is a good example. And Peter Jackson too, mm-hmm. like with bad taste. Like right. you just you feel their fingers in those movies so much that it's half the charm of the movie is just feeling somebody be creative and like having like every ounce of their energy be on screen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's rare, but it's it's super special when it when it comes across that way. So to go backwards a little bit, um, Astron Six was that that was a kind of film collective between you and a number of other people, right? Yeah, so it was. Me, Adam Brooks, Jeremy Gillespie, Connor Sweeney, and Matt Kennedy. And so, I mean, I won't bore you with the full breakdown of how we all met, but uh, basically we were just uh, five guys in Winnipeg who started making movies together, and we all shared a love of, uh, like, genre cinema, um, while also each kind of bringing our own more specific tastes within that uh, to the table. And so uh, we all just started making movies together because our tastes and our tones like lined up so perfectly and we all kind of complemented each other uh, so well that uh, we had a real like glorious couple of years where we were all just making shorts and movies and stuff where we would all just help each other out. And, you know, I would like do effects for everybody's movies um, and they would do, they would act in my movies and Jeremy would do music for everybody's movies. So it was like, uh, just like a real good, uh, collaborative, uh, thing we had going. Um, and so, yeah, we made a few features together. I made Manborg and then we made Father's Day for Troma. And, uh, then when we all kind of moved to different parts of the country, we split up a little bit. Uh, so not so much split up as just like physically we had to be apart from each other. So we didn't work together as much. Uh, so the other guys made the editor while Jeremy and I made the void. Uh, and then we collectively all had such horrible experiences on both those movies that we teamed up and made uh, chow boys, which is our short film that played Sundance um, about cannibal cowboys. So you can see that that's on YouTube. Now I think we threw up uh, just just as a uh, quarantine payment uh, <laughs> for people so that they have something to something to watch. Uh, so yeah, yeah, we're still to this day still talking. I talk to those guys every day. We have like a Facebook chat where we're constantly ripping on each other. Nice. So yeah, it's nice having like a group of filmmakers who like you can trust and like you trust their opinions and we like are always kind of throwing ideas and stuff back and forth and uh, just kind of, yeah, keeping that relationship alive because, you know, you find other talented people, you got to hang on to them. That's the hardest thing in this industry is finding people that, uh, you know, are more talented than you that you can like rely on to make whatever it is that you're making even better. Yeah. So. Yeah, and the fact that, I mean, I would imagine, I, I had a conversation with Radio Silence, who were the guys behind Ready or Not. There's like three or three of those, three of them. Um, and they were talking a lot about how th- having a collective was way more sustainable long term 
when it came to their filmmaking careers because they had each other. When one of them would get burned out, the other would carry the load, so to speak. And just the idea of the collective and not going it alone, considering how long, arduous, and often lonely a, a journey it is to be an independent filmmaker, the idea of, of starting having a nourishing a collective is, uh, I found it was a really interesting idea and something I've, I feel like not a lot of people are talking about, nor do people seem to consciously try to form collectives. They just seem to spontaneously happen. The, the part that they like, I don't think people talk about as much is that, you know, creative minds working together can be very difficult mm. and there can be a lot of clashes and a lot of butting of heads like, uh, with Astron, like we've definitely had periods where we don't get along. Like we've scrapped with each other a lot. And I think that's just natural because creative people, I feel like are normally unhinged anyway. Right. So to like get in that intensely on something like you're asking for trouble, but in the end it's usually worth it because you know, the bottom line is the, the talent that's brought to the table and the thing that you're creating. And so if you're able to push past those disagreements, like it usually ends up having a, a better product as a result of it. But, uh, yeah, there are sacrifices you have to make. And, uh, I think that the most important thing collective or not is to work with a team of people that you trust and that you get along with and you have a rapport with who like respect your vision, but are also willing to challenge you when they think something is something's up and something's going in a bad direction. Mm -hmm. And then also as an artist being receptive to that and being able to like, you know, know maybe when you're wrong and know when to stick with something if you think it's the right direction to go. So yeah, it's like no matter what the scenario, whether you're directing with one other person or a group of people or yourself, it's like, it's always going to be a team no matter what. And so just making sure you got the best team, for the thing that you're making and a team of people that you are happy to spend the next year or two of your life with, mm -hmm. uh, and not get totally fed up with and want to strangle, uh, <laughs> super important. Yeah. So yeah. Cause yeah, you, I've learned from trying to do this stuff myself so often that you can't do it yourself. You've got to have a team of people yeah. to support you. And so the key is to be collaborative and supportive back to those people and try and build as much of a community as you can. I feel like that's very golden advice. Yeah, it's, it's true though. Like I think people, creatives think very insular and think like what they want and their vision, the thing that they're making. And it's a very like laser focused thing that can be good. But when you're making a movie, like the process of making a movie is not the same as making a like sculpting a makeup or doing a painting or something. It's like, it's a job and you got people that are relying on you and you're relying on them. And all, all the dynamics of a work environment come into play there. So it's like, I think that business side of it is just as important as the creative side and knowing how to navigate personalities. Um, and, yeah, just being able to like be a good leader, but also being responsive to criticism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, at the end of the day, you're making a product, and so you gotta, you know, do all the steps to make sure that that product gets delivered on time and hopefully on budget. And that means working with people. Yeah. Well, I'd love to talk about the void. I 
loved this movie. It was just so you're just you were so good to your audience. It was just so much great stuff happening. It was just beautifully done. I, I really enjoyed the hell out of it. From what I understand, it was a real labor of love, though. And uh, I was reading that it was a difficult time. Could you talk about that? It was a labor of love until it became a miserable nightmare. <laughs> I mean, Jeremy and I set out to just make like the quintessential horror movie that we both wanted to see. Um, and I mean, even just within that two person dynamic, I feel like we butted heads on what that meant mm. in terms of what the movie is supposed to be. I get the impression like from people talking to me about the film that like they're really happy with feeling that kind of interplay between me and Jeremy and what the movies, cause like you can tell, or at least I can, like you can tell the Jeremy parts and you can tell the Steve parts. Like you can tell when it goes off the rails into Steve land. Um, and I think it, it makes for an interesting movie. It was such a like traumatic experience across the board. I probably won't be watching it for, Oh, it was awful. And Jeremy can 100% confirm that. Yeah, I read a quote from him about it. <laughs> it's it's like, yeah, like everything that could have gone wrong went wrong. And there were certain parties involved that like were not up to the task of making a movie. And so Jeremy and I were left basically every day just trying to make this thing happen to the best of our abilities. I think also it was maybe naive of us to go into it thinking like, Oh, we made it. We're making a real movie with a real budget. Like we were hoping that after like the days of man, and father's day, we wouldn't have to do everything ourselves. And, and this isn't to discredit the many talented people that worked on the film that did great, great work across the board. But like, there was still a lot of stuff where, it's like we're shooting inserts like in my effects shop late at night ourselves, like renting the camera ourselves and doing it. Like, like we ended up having to like patch that movie together into something watchable uh, just because it was such a like, like the foundations of that movie were so shaky from the start. And uh, it was inevitable that stuff was going to fall apart. Like we, we were scheduled to shoot uh, like August 3rd, I think August 2nd or 3rd, 2015. And like a few days before well, we found out that we weren't shooting the movie. And so it ended up getting pushed months. And so that ended up cutting into our budget, that push. So it was like a lot of stuff that I won't go into too much detail, but it like, like stuff that was so out of our control and yet affected the overall quality of the movie like it still came down to us to figure out how to make that thing like make a movie out of it out of disaster and i feel like there was a lot of times where i just wanted to curl up in a ball and Whoa. just pretend like it wasn't happening and just like quit the whole thing because it was so bad but uh yeah i mean we fought hard to make that movie what it is and a lot of people who really like helped and supported us along the way that did a great job. Um, just like kind of helping get us to that finish line. So in the end, it's a movie that people seem to like and appreciate. 
Um, I'm thankful for the learning One of my common questions is, as a filmmaker, was there ever a kind of dark night of the soul where you were completely questioning whether or not you were going to go through with either a career as a filmmaker or a particular project? And it sounds like this may have been that that project. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, dark night was every day for like three or four years. Like basically from like us pitching the movie, we pitched it at the Fantasia uh, film production market in Montreal, where you go, you take projects and, uh, you know, put on a presentation then you meet with producers. I feel like from that point on, it just turned into a living nightmare for me and Jeremy. And, uh, yeah, after that is like, everything seemed like a cakewalk after that, which is funny because like, even like on father's day, like that movie was so chaotic and like miserable for a million different reasons. And I feel like a a lot of that misery got put on the other guys in Astron, especially Adam. But uh, even just what I experienced, I remember thinking like, Oh, like it could never get as bad as this. And then the void got way worse. So yeah, I think it was a, it was a good learning experience. It definitely made me question whether I wanted to even make movies. It made me also question if I even like want to make horror movies like that because I realized in that movie I'm not a huge fan of like punishing the audience, and I feel like that movie can be pretty punishing at times. But at the same time, I'm like glad that it's such a, an anomaly, at least in my filmography. Like, like I like the the emotional whiplash of the movies that I've made to go from like like manborg to void to leprechaun to pg it's like <laughs> like I, I feel like an outside party looking at that'll be like what is this guy's problem like what kind of movies does he want to make because they're not consistent but uh i think that's half the fun is just trying things and trying to be as like like tr- I, I don't think pg would have turned out as good as it did if I didn't make something like the void and get those learning experiences from it. So I feel like, yeah, every movie's a learning experience and um, I, I definitely got a lot out of the void in terms of learning what to do and what not to do making a film. Well, what was it that got you through the dark night of the soul? Cause I'm sure there were moments where you were tempted to, to quit and throw in the towel but what got you through actually getting the whole thing done and just braving through all of it? Well, I think if the whole movie was on me, it would have, I would have definitely broken. But I think, I think the fact that the like misery was split between me and Jeremy was the only reason that movie got done. Uh, especially looking back on it. Like there was a lot of situations that I just like, just opted out of that he took the reins on. And in retrospect, like that's like really appreciate that. And I feel vice versa. There was, especially in pre-production with the creature effects, there was like so much drama that I had to navigate just to get these monsters built for this movie. Uh, and just to like, you know, keep my crew from walking, walking out of the shop, uh, that like, that was entirely on me. Um, so yeah, I think just, just the fact that me and Jeremy did it 
together, I think, was what got us through. Yeah. Because if one of us went down, the other one inevitably picked up the pieces. Wow. Well, we can transition to a happier topic. Let's let's talk about Psycho Norman. Yeah. No, talking about it is like never, never a great time. And I've said it already a bunch of times, but like, and that's not to shit on all the hard work people did and like the awesome stuff that's in that movie and the like cast and everything is awesome about it. And very happy with what we came out with at the end of it, but it was just a lot of hell to get to that point. Yeah. I, and I wouldn't wish it on anyone ever. Well, so how did Psycho Gorman come together from my original idea and conception to finished product? How did the movie come together? Uh, so I came back from doing Leprechaun in South Africa and I had some free time on my hands because I just finished that film and uh, it was in post. So I was kind of like in between work at that time. And so I started noodling on an idea for another movie. Um, and I've had the, the image of the movie that I've had in my head for a very long time. It's just like a big scary monster guy sitting at a drum set I don't know where that really came from, but it's just always been in the back of my mind. And so I was watching the movie Rawhead Rex um, and wasn't really enjoying it. It's pretty slow, but I was just enamored with the idea of, well, for starters, just the fact that it's called Rawhead Rex, such an absurd title. But also I love the idea of just this like ancient monster guy like wreaking havoc on a town and as i was sitting there kind of like drifting off as this movie is playing i was imagining a scenario where it's like well what if the monster like like was under the control of like some kids and like what if one of those kids was somehow crazier than the monster like because it was another thing another idea that i had floating around my head was the fact that like kids in movies or at least modern movies, like I feel like they're never crazy the way kids are. Right. Like kids are in their own universe and it's awesome. And it's a thing that I don't see captured enough where it's like, like they have their, like their own like set of laws and rules about how the world works. And they're very like adamant about it, like very committed to it. And I like, I just miss that level of having that level of imagination and confidence in your imagination. So I wanted a kid character that eventually became Mimi, the protagonist of the movie. If you could call her a protagonist, she's pretty nuts. But uh, just the idea of like the interplay between this little girl who's like kind of a maniac and this evil like space overlord monster guy and like what kind of relationship they would have and what would the like consequences be of that relationship? So I banged out a treatment for this idea and passed it around. And everybody I sent it to was like, this is awesome. Like, write this movie and let's make this. Uh, so without going into too much detail about it, uh, some friends of mine are, uh, were able to independently finance the film uh, with some independent money. So I was... Uh, very lucky in that regard uh, to have a nice, like healthy for a low budget film budget that wasn't tied to any kind of real, like studio expectations. Mm -hmm. 
not like something like Leprechaun where I had Lionsgate and Sci-Fi Channel breathing down my neck, um, where they had a certain set of expectations with, they, with what they wanted with that movie, with PG. I basically had free reign to do whatever I wanted. Um, and so I feel like that's the only way a movie like this could even get made because it's pretty bonkers. It is not... It, it, it's funny. It like adheres to so many like common tropes and feels familiar while also totally off the wall and crazy at the same time. Yeah, it reminded me of childhood a lot. It seems to reference. I can't even pinpoint the what uh, the the nostalgia factor, but it it reminds me of a lot of elements of childhood, and I don't know what they are yet. I feel like when I see the movie, I'll I'll probably get it. Well, it's yeah, and that's that's kind of what a lot of my movies are like. I feel like even the void is like that where you know the reference is sort of, but it's not so knows. And Manborg was like that too, where it's like, it just feels like an overarching like representation of like the video store shelf that had all the Empire Pictures movies on it. And so PG is similar to that, but I feel like it's it's like a mishmash of like Power Rangers and Mortal Kombat and Giver. And Giver 2 specifically was the one I used to always rent. Um, and yeah, it's just like a million influences mashed together, uh, but with a very basic through line that feels like E.T. meets mm-hmm. Terminator 2. Right. Yeah. As I was looking at him, I was like, wait, I, I picked up on Power Rangers and then I was like Swamp Thing, maybe a little bit or Lordy or and, and Guar. There's like a little bit. Yeah. It just, it just, it, it, um, it brought up a lot of, uh, a lot of influences from you know childhood in the nineties and what, whatnot. It's, it's cool. I'm, I'm psyched to see it. I was just going to say, it's like, like I was saying before, it's like, I'm trying to fill like a void of a type of movie that just doesn't seem to exist anymore. So it's like, I matched like 20 different kinds of movies that I'm not seeing on the Netflix queue yeah. anymore. Yeah and just mash them all into one movie. So hopefully it satisfies people in that regard. Cause it's definitely that kind of like horror sci-fi fantasy thing that they stopped making in the mid nineties. Last uh, few questions. When it comes to filmmaking and, and writing, there's a uh, directing, there's a lot of books out there. There's a lot of courses. There's a lot of materials, a lot of which are written by people who haven't actually done it. Um, so it's, it's a market that kind of is very synonymous with bullshit. But that being said, were there any uh, resources or books that were particularly formidable for you when it came to uh, directing or creativity in general? I mean, like to me, and it's like going back to the creature effects thing too. It's like, just have to do it and screw it up and do it again and consume like as many movies and like whatever the content is that you're trying to make, like consume as much of that as possible. Cause I find like for me at least like everybody's process is different, but I get like stuff kind of embedded in my brain, like subconsciously. And I don't realize not necessarily like exact lines, but just kind of like, approaches to like how to write a conversation or how to write a scene. Like that's the kind of stuff you can only get from, I think like kind of enjoying that kind of media in the first place. Uh, But yeah, as far as like books on directing, I don't know. I wouldn't even say like specific books, but just like read interviews with read interviews with writers and directors. They're all over the place. Like I love reading like anything Tarantino has to say about his process, I love. 
because he always has something insightful to say. Or even just like, I think a good helpful thing too is just behind the scenes features like watch, like I love watching the making of like all the Lord of the Rings movies to see like that process. Okay. I guess for me, I just, I like watching stuff like big complicated spectacle like that, that requires a lot of like a lot of navigating on the director's part. I like watching and kind of like observing. Uh, but yeah, I really think like the best advice on that front I can give is just do it and get feedback. It hurts. It sucks when you're like, write a thing and you give it to someone and they go, that's bad. Like it, it stings, but you got to just do it. Don't be the person that like totally buries their head and doesn't get an outside perspective because that usually doesn't go anywhere good. So yeah, I think being collaborative and getting opinions and knowing when to like keep an opinion and when to throw it out is also an important skill. So I think all that just comes from doing it. Just start doing it, start writing a thing, but like, if you want to get into filmmaking and you've never done it before, like write a five minute short, like write a five page story. Don't even start with it in script format. Just like write a story out. And like, cause that's usually how I start my scripts is I just write, like I have a notebook and I just scribble stuff down and it's very stream of consciousness because it's like, you just got to get the thing down. And once you have that thing, you can start molding it into something because a lot of people, I have a lot of conversations with people where they're like, oh, I got this idea and it's like, I don't even want to talk to you about this idea. I want to see a thing because anybody can say I have an idea. Like literally anybody on the planet can say that. But to say I have a script I wrote is a little bit more intriguing because you put the work in. Yeah. So it's tangible at that point. Yeah. Make a thing, whether it's a script or a story or a short animation or something and that's your starting point and look from that and make another thing and just keep making things that is from my very like specific stream of filmmaking that's my advice and that's my approach is like the only way you learn is by doing stuff so just keep doing it great advice so what is next for you uh well i guess i'm on this like forced vacation for the first <laughs> future which is ironic because after pg i was like i'm not gonna dive into anything i'm gonna take a break and then of course i started like started conversations about doing stuff and now i'm forced to just sit and hang out so played the hell out of the new doom game and it's great i heard so about it i can give that a very uh, strong endorsement uh but yeah i don't know i'm just like I got things I'm chugging away on. I've been doing a little bit of stop motion on the side just for fun because I haven't done it in a while. So I've just been posting those to my Instagram, uh, just making little vignettes of things. Um, yeah, it's like having conversations about projects, but it's like nothing concrete enough to announce or make any kind of real statement about. So yeah, it's like everything's in a holding pattern right now because that's what the rest of the world is doing. But yeah, it seems like hopefully by the fall I will have something on the go. But in the meantime, yeah, I'm just going to be pushing PG and lining up whatever the release plan is for that. Mm -hmm. Great. 
Cool. Well, Steve, this is a real pleasure. Thank you for giving me so much time and a uh, big fan of your working. Really looking forward to Psycho Gorman. Thanks for chatting with me. Of course, man. Thanks again. Talk to you soon. Stay safe. Yeah, you too, man. Talk soon. All right. A lot to learn from this conversation with Steve. So here, as always, are some key takeaways from this conversation with Stephen Kostansky. Number one, consider learning practical effects. Steve's background in practical effects tremendously helped him boost the production value of his movies because he was able to load them with creature and gore effects that otherwise would have been prohibitively expensive. Similar to Steve, Damien Leone, who directed Terrifier, had a background in practical effects too, which substantially helped Terrifier get made as well as it did. Not to mention the fact that Guillermo del Toro learned practical effects from Dick Smith as well so that he could make the creature effects for his first movie, Kronos. Side note, to build the creature effects for The Void, Steve raised about $80,000 on Indiegogo. This went just to the creature design and the effects. Had he required an effects company, the budget probably would have been double that. So regardless of whether you want to learn practical effects, the point here is to have an additional skill set that you can contribute to your production beyond directing. This way you can boost the production value of your film without breaking your budget. Number two, multitask if you're multi-talented. Steve puts different parts of himself into each of his movies by personally handling the effects, the creatures, and the costume designs. He claims that if he isn't flying on all cylinders on a movie, he has this sense of creative anxiety. This is not about control, but it's about scratching your own creative itches if you have them. If there are multiple elements of your movie that you can single-handedly handle, you should try to do that. As important as delegation might be on certain films, being this hands-on gives you the opportunity to give your movie a very signature aesthetic, which Steve's movies all have. So if you're multi-talented, embrace this urge within yourself and try wearing multiple creative hats on your movie. Number three, if you're going through hell, keep going. Steve and his co-director on The Void, Jeremy Gillespie, are very outspoken about what a nightmare it was to make The Void. It was so bad and soul-crushing that Steven doesn't even like talking about it. But he did say that the experience substantially forced him to grow as a director. So to a degree, he's grateful for it. Films are Murphy's Law, some more than others. Filmmaking is the furthest thing in the world from a smooth process, especially when you have limited time, limited budgets, and limited resources. But as a director, it's critical to remember that these are the experiences that forge your iron in the fire into steel and give you the capacity to take on bigger and better projects. As horrendous as they can be, these kind of experiences prompt the kind of growth that can help you overcome the even larger problems that come with your future productions. Also, producers are typically very attracted to directors who overcome challenges and odds. So remember that smooth seas do not make good sailors. And if you're going through hell on your production, whatever you do, don't give up. You'll come out of it better and stronger than when you went in. Anyway, guys, thanks again, as always, for listening to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean the world to us if you shared it with your friends and family on social media. Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at I'm Nick Taylor. That's I am Nick Taylor. And on Twitter at the same handle. Thanks again for listening to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Horror Show.